Well, I would draw your attention this morning to God's holy word found in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, we will read a couple verses at the beginning of Ephesians 3 and then verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And then verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together before you today, Lord, to open up your word, to look to your word, to hear from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would imprison each heart this morning. Lord, that you would take captive our minds. That you would open our ears, open our eyes. Lord, let us see from your word here this morning. Let us hear from your word. Lord, no other words can bring life. No other words can bring hope. No other words can bring peace. Lord, feed us from your word this morning. Lord, be with us. Be with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper that we might always remember our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Lord, if there be any here this morning who are yet strangers to you, Lord, let them see the Savior this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, often in life, uh, we are faced with some things that are difficult and unpleasant, aren't we? Uh, Life is full of difficulties, life is full of hardships. From the time you are born, you're on the road to death. And sometimes that road is not long. Sometimes it's quite lengthy. But it's full of hardship. It's full of struggle, full of difficulties. Things we dread, things we find to be labor-intensive, things that we find to be just out-and-out exhausting. Do you ever think about why... That is, that we don't always run from these things that are hard. Why don't we always run from these things that are difficult? There may be truly some things that we do run from, and we may try and remove every possibility of hardship. But I would venture to guess that if you think about your life, there are things that you've come across that you don't want to experience or deal with, because of the hurt and the difficulty that you'll experience by 
having to take part in, in this or that. But you went ahead and did them. Why? Why did you do that? Was it not because there was something more important in the end? Something that was far greater or more pressing. And the only way to obtain that thing or to get to it was to go through that which was unpleasant. Let's be honest, there are things that control us. Some of us don't like pain. I don't. I don't like pain. I've had some things in my life that have caused pain, physical pain, and I don't like them. I deal with one of them still to this day, every single day, when I wake up, when I walk, doesn't matter what I'm doing, I deal with it. I don't like it. Some of us don't like that, and, and us not liking that pain, us being averse to that pain, controls us, and we try and stay away from those things that cause us pain. For some of us, it may be shame. We don't want to feel ashamed. We don't want to be embarrassed in front of others. They might affect the way that they perceive us or the way that they feel about us. But there comes a time when there is something more that we, that we love more than the possibility of shame, than the possibility of pain. There may be something that we love more or fear more than that aversion that we have to those things. Something that is stronger, that compels us, that constrains us or imprisons us, so to speak, and leaves us with no option but to endure the hardship and suffering to accomplish or obtain that thing which we love. Let me illustrate this for a second this morning. Those of you who have kids... If you have children, and those of you that do, I'm going to assume that none of you are like me and enjoy pain. But I think there's probably a circumstance or how many of you would choose to experience pain if it allowed your children to not have to experience it. Or how many of you would throw yourself in harm's way to protect your children, despite what it might cost you. This is what we will deal with from our text this morning. And I hope you will see, as I attempt to get across to you, this very fact regarding the Apostle Paul, who writes this epistle or this letter to the Ephesians that we have spent the last several weeks looking at in our study in, through Ephesians. We'll attempt to just deal with this, uh, probably the first two verses. I know we have the Lord's Supper, and I don't want to be overly lengthy here this morning. I look forward to getting to the next part here in Ephesians 3, but I think there's, there's something for us to look at specifically from verse 3 here this morning that the Lord would have us to draw our attention to. Verse 1 says, For this reason I we again find one of these connecting phrases that Paul is using here at the beginning, at the start of chapter 3. This, uh, we've seen already a few times in this epistle to the Ephesians, is something that Paul has been doing. He is building the case as the Spirit inspires him to write these things. 
After his greeting, he proceeds to show these blessings that we have received in chapter 1 that we have received from God the Father through the Son. Blessings which were planned before the foundation of the world. These spiritual blessings. Paul then builds on that as he shows the state that these Gentiles were in by nature and how desperate and devastating their case was. Yet God, being rich in mercy. Here's one of those connecting phrases. But God, being rich in mercy. In mercy and grace, He made them alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He sent Christ on this grand rescue mission to redeem those for the, that the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. Then he once again builds upon his original thesis, if you will, here in Ephesians, uh, regarding these blessings and calls the Gentiles to remember what it is that they are in the flesh, how they were strangers. This is what we've looked at most recently. They were strangers. They were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. They had no message of peace. They were separated without God, without hope in this world. Then once again, he uses one of these connecting phrases. But now, Paul says, in Jesus Christ. You were this, but now. In Jesus Christ. And then he builds upon these statements of blessing and grace again with the remembrance of these things that they were aliens, but now they're citizens. They had no hope. Now they have been given hope in Christ Jesus. They had no peace. But now they have peace and they've been brought near. All these things, building them up into a holy temple or dwelling place for God in the Holy Spirit. Paul then continues to build and to connect what he is going to tell this body at Ephesus and beyond, though even to us, And he's building upon that which he's already said. We have to remember that this epistle is a letter. We we sometimes forget in reading these epistles that they were most they they were letters. They were pastoral letters. God breathed, inspired by God to be used for reproof, correction, for teaching, to equip the saints to whom they've been written to. And we often forget that there is an overall thrust to these letters. We've, we've mentioned before, and I'll mention briefly here again, the, the original didn't have these verse numbers, these chapter numbers, or these, you know, the headings that we have in many of our Bibles. As I look around, I can see the headings, these pericope headings, these sections where we have a heading that tells us kind of the gist of what we're going to, to read about as it goes down and as we go through the Word. But these things were not there in the original. These were one long letter. There may have been some paragraphs here and there. But this was a letter like you and I would sit down to write a letter to somebody. Or you younger people, emails to someone. And it would have an overall thrust to the whole message. You wouldn't have scattered a scattered thought here and then a scattered thought right next to it here and here and here. You would write this as a, almost a complete thought. Sometimes when we have these divisions like we do, we think that, that this, is, this part stands on its own. It is not related to that which comes before or that which comes after it, but that's not the case. And in Paul's letter, we see this. He starts out and he builds continually through this letter to the, this epistle to the Ephesians. 
And this connection, this, this for this reason, that starts verse 1 of chapter 3, is really and actually the start of a prayer, which doesn't actually start until verse 14. Do you see that? Did you, did you catch that when we were reading, reading through this? That's why I skipped to verse 14. In verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, and then he interjects something here. And he picks back up where he started in verse 1, in verse 14 when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So this is often the case when we are writing or someone is writing something heartfelt to someone, something that is a, is a matter of great importance, that we might take a sides in what we write that is connected to our overall theme, something that, that explains, and then we continue back later on with the actual gist of where we were going with the message. This is what occurs here as Paul starts to relate the prayer that he has for these Ephesians and says for this reason. And then the Spirit moves him to remind them, to remind his listeners who it is that is writing to them. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul once again identifies himself as the one who penned this epistle, and he does so in a very interesting and powerful way. This is not something we want to skip over. He calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus on account of you Gentiles. He continues to remind them of his calling, the source of his calling, and the reason of his calling as he continues through chapter 3. But why does the Lord, the Spirit, lead him to remind them of his imprisonment here? I think he does this to call attention to the fact that this calling that he's received, that he's going to expound on here in just a few verses, this calling that he's received is of the utmost importance. This is, this is what his purpose is. He's reminding these Ephesians that his care and concern for them goes way beyond the concern that he has for himself. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul makes mention of this in several of his letters, does he not? Do you recall this as Paul writes many of his epistles? In uh, Philemon 1, 1, he starts out by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. A few verses down in Philemon, uh, in verse 9, he says, I, Paul, an old man... And now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And then later on in Ephesians, Ephesians, you, you may have it on the same page that you're open to, Ephesians 4 verse 1. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. In writing to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Isn't that an odd way of phrasing that? He doesn't say a prisoner of Rome. 
He doesn't say a prisoner of Caesar. He says he's a prisoner of Christ, of him. And he says, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's interesting what he says to Timothy in his second letter there. When he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Often the subject of imprisonment would be a a source of shame and ridicule. We don't like to talk about people that are in prison. We don't like to talk about people who have broken the law because it's a thing of shame. People don't like to talk about their prison sentences. I deal with this all the time. In my work, talking to people who have previously been convicted of something, they don't like to talk about that, especially if they have been rehabilitated, so to speak, by worldly standards. They don't like to talk about their time and what they did their time for because it is a source of embarrassment. It's a source of shame. It's a source of ridicule. But Paul here tells Timothy in his letter to him to not be ashamed of the gospel, or of him who is his prisoner. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's almost as as if Paul is saying that this is a source of joy for him. This is almost a badge of honor that he would be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look at how, in what way, Paul was a, a prisoner. Paul absolutely and indeed was a prisoner of Rome. Uh, we find him in this, uh, this state when he's writing this epistle to the Ephesians. He is a prisoner in Rome when he is writing these letters. We find this detailed for us in Acts. Uh, we learn earlier in Acts that Paul was arrested and brought before the leaders. Uh, we'll look at that here in a little bit. He appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen And he was eventually brought as a prisoner to Rome and placed into a sort of house arrest there for two years. We find that Paul was arrested in chapter 21 of Acts. So if you will, let's look at that. Let's turn to Acts 21. We find that Paul had come to Jerusalem and that Paul went to the temple. And, and I want to read this specifically because it has something that connects to what we've looked at before from Ephesians 2. So we're starting with verse 27 of Acts 21, down through verse 36, we're going to read starting in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, now listen, think about this. Think about what we talked about last, last week. This wall of separation in the temple. This court of the Gentiles separated by this wall to the court of the Jews with signs on it that said that if a Gentile was to enter, their death would be on their own head, basically, is what it was saying. 
And these signs were placed on this wall. They actually have two of them that have been discovered in archaeology. You're more than welcome to look that up or I can bring you a picture of it. This is something that they have discovered. But look at what is said here. He even brought, excuse me, even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. This was one of the accusations they made against Paul and one of the reasons they sought to arrest Paul was because he brought Greeks into the temple past that middle wall of separation, that dividing wall. For they had previously seen Trophimus and and the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who, was, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. Paul is arrested here, as we have recorded by Luke for us in Acts. But this set into motion a plan that the Lord God had for Paul all along. And this is a, it's a most remarkable study. I, I encourage you to read from this section of just look, read through Acts sometime and really note the plans of the Lord for the Apostle Paul and how this is one of these areas where it starts these plans being carried out. Remember, we read earlier that after Paul's Damascus road conversion, he was sent to a man named Ananias who would lay hands on Paul and Paul would regain his sight. But Ananias was fearful of Paul, or as he was then referred to as Saul. He was fearful of him because of the havoc and the injury that Saul had, had done to the church. But what did the Lord say to Ananias in Acts 9? In Acts 9.15, listen to what he says. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the arrest of Paul that puts him before King Agrippa. The providence of God, God's predestination, His ordering all things to accomplish His purposes is seen even in this, the arrest of Paul. This arrest sets all that into motion and set forth the ability for Paul to stand before kings and declare the mystery that he talks about in Ephesians 3 that we'll get to eventually. So we find that Paul was in fact a prisoner of Rome. But is that actually what he said he was? What does he say in Ephesians 3? 
In Ephesians 3, we go back to that. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He may have been a prisoner of Rome. He may have been a prisoner of Caesar. But first and foremost, Paul is a prisoner of Christ. Ultimately, not a prisoner because of wrongs committed against the empire of Rome or against the Jewish leaders, but a prisoner because of his faith and the ministry entrusted to him by God. Therefore, he is a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ to accomplish what it is that God has given him to do in the way that God has purposed it. He is ultimately saying that these chains of Rome, these chains to which he has been bound under house arrest, in Acts 28.16, which reads, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And the understanding is that this house arrest, Paul was able to be there in the house, but he was most likely chained to a soldier 24-7. Literally bound to him. But he was allowed to do this, and according to, according to Acts 28, 30-31, he was allowed to be in this house arrest situation, but continue proclaiming, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what is it that most constrained Paul? It wasn't Rome. It was the constraining influence and control of the love of God and the gift of God's grace, the revelation of this mystery that we'll get to, Lord willing, next Sunday. We've hinted at it before, we've talked a little bit about it before, but Paul brings it into much more light in Ephesians 3.3 and following. Turn with me real quick and let's take a look at what I believe is the true constraint upon Paul as we find it, as we find him declaring it in 2 Corinthians 5. Back a few pages most likely in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 11 through 21. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now listen, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. 
We've read this several times over the last little bit. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Think about the way this fits in with what we have been looking at in Ephesians 2, the last part of Ephesians 2. This reconciliation between man and God and between each other, right? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, He made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The love of Christ, Paul says here in this passage, controls us. Controls us. Some translations read, the love of Christ constrains us. It imprisons us. It takes hold of us. It doesn't let us go. Some weaker translations seek to use language like urges or compels us. I think that falls short of what Paul felt about the love of Christ and what it does in the heart of one who has been redeemed, one who has been saved. It constrains us. Places chains upon us. The love of God imprisons us. And he points out in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it leads us to be ambassadors of Christ. This is what Paul's imprisonment was all about. It was about this ministry of reconciliation and that God made him a minister. He was even more than that. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was an ambassador of Christ. In fact, as a result of understanding this grace and mercy that God had given him and God had revealed to him in the plan of salvation and the plan of redemption, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16 through 18, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. He says, for necessity, it was laid upon me. For necessity, it was laid upon me. And then he says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. He was enchanted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was imprisoned by it. And then he says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will... I am still entrusted with a stewardship. With a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. But he calls him, he says that he was entrusted with a stewardship. Do you recall when we read verse 2 of Ephesians 3? What Paul said? assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's been made a steward 
of this. Paul cannot but proclaim the message of which he was an ambassador, of which he was a steward or a caretaker. Do we, we don't use the word steward much. Do you understand what that means? To be a steward. To be, to be given a stewardship. A steward is one who oversees his master's domain. One who must work and must labor to keep that which the master has placed in his care. That's what a steward does. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of what? of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, he says, now listen to this, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Think about this in light of where he is. He is imprisoned in Rome. He's saying it's a small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Do you see what he is saying here and how, he, how this connects with our text? Paul is not worried about the constraints, the chains, the imprisonment of the Roman Empire, as great as it was. And Rome was powerful. But he is not worried about the imprisonment that he is facing under Rome. These things are small in his eyes. His eyes have been opened to something that is much greater than Rome. Much more powerful than Rome. Much, much more loving than Rome. These things are small in his eyes, but he must be faithful to God. As a steward over that which God has entrusted him with, which is the ministry of reconciliation to proclaim the mystery that I so look forward to talking about that we read further about in, in Ephesians 3. He's saying the same thing that Peter and James said in Acts 4. If we turn back to Acts 4, I'm not going to take the time to read all this. But in Acts 4, verse 20, let's start with uh, verse 18. So they called them, 
This is the the Jewish leaders, the priests. Uh, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are essentially saying the same thing that Paul is saying in our text from Ephesians here this morning when he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He constrains me with cords, with chains that are more powerful than any worldly jailer can ever imagine. I may be constrained by you in Rome, Paul says, but I must go on doing that which I am much more powerfully imprisoned to. God has taken hold and captured Paul's heart. His soul belongs to God, drawn to him with cords of everlasting love and mercy. Once again, we see a connection in Acts 5, 27 through 29, with all the other apostles being threatened by the high priest. And it reads, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This is that ruling council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in His name, in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man, this man's blood, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So then once again, Paul is telling his readers in the same vein that Peter and the apostles answered in Acts 5. He's telling his readers, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm constrained by Him. The most important thing for Paul was that he had been given what he had been given to do, and as a recipient himself of God's grace, immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of His grace. These great blessings that he talks about in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 2, himself being a recipient of these things, these graces, these mercies of God the Father, through the work of God the Son, revealed through the Spirit, to him as an apostle, he was willing to endure and count all of his hardships as joy. To be imprisoned by men, if need be, for the gospel and the cause of Jesus Christ, and ultimately to be counted as not the prisoner of men, but the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Do you see as we circle back to what we said in the very beginning? I am certain there was absolutely nothing that was pleasant about Paul's imprisonment. Even though he was on house arrest and allowed to have visitors and allowed to preach and to teach, there would be nothing pleasant about being chained to a guard. But he could count it joy to be suffering on behalf of the Gentiles to whom He was appointed to bring the words of hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the good news of salvation that he had been sharing with them in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. That was his message. That was his constant message to the Gentiles. But God, who is rich in mercy, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Reminded of a song that we sang recently by John Newton, which one of the stanzas says, Content with beholding His face, my all to His pleasure resigned. No changes of season or place would make any change in my mind. While blessed with a sense of His love, a palace, a toy would appear. And prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Do you see the joy in the spite of hardship? I think Newton understood very rightly what Paul is alluding to here in this first part of Ephesians chapter 3 in being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He may be imprisoned by Rome, but his prison has become a palace because he is in Christ. Called to his service, he's Christ's steward. And he finds even there, in that place, he has a ministry. A message for God's people. And it's chiefly that message, that gospel proclamation, that imprisons Paul. And he's joyful about it. It's not something to be ashamed of. He later tells his readers in Ephesians not to lose heart over what he is suffering by his physical imprisonment because it is their glory. It is for their good that he is going through these things and all of it is to the glory of God. All of it. Let me ask you here this morning... Are you constrained by our Lord? Are you willing to endure hardships for your children, for your neighbors, for your co-workers? Are you willing to be a faithful steward, an ambassador of that which you have been given? These things are absolute and utter foolishness to the world. The gospel, the message of salvation is foolishness to them. They'll ridicule you. They'll make fun of you. They'll belittle you. And it's that message that they need to hear. But is there something that constrains you more than the fears of that? Do you have the knowledge of God revealed in your hearts? Does it so bind you? Does it so constrain you that you would say, like Peter said, we cannot but speak. I don't care if you think it's foolishness. I don't care if you think it's, it's ridiculous. I cannot but speak of the things which I have seen and heard. God help us to be heralds of these things. Do Christians not 
have the greatest news for a lost and dying world? Is there any message that's better than the message of Jesus Christ and what He's done? We're getting ready to look at, I'm sure, a passage where we see what it is that Christ has done for us. Abraham, when he took Isaac, what did he say when Isaac asked, well, where's the sacrifice? The Lord Himself will provide. We have this as our message. We have this to share with a lost and dying world. If you're outside of Christ this morning, if you're lost, I would challenge you to go home and read Ephesians 2. See what your state is. Lost, dead. But then get to verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy. And then see how Paul once again takes you back to who you are in the flesh. No hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, camp out there. Read that over and over and over again. And may the Spirit work in you to show you the truth of it. And show you it's not foolishness. This is something that will constrain you. That will captivate you. Like it did Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Christ Jesus. We thank You that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. We thank You that He took upon Himself our sins on the cross. Lord, that He made atonement through His blood. Lord, He gave us His His own righteousness that would cover us, that we might draw near to the Father in Him. Lord, be with us as we come to Your table. Lord, give us hearts overflowing with thanksgiving for the great work that You've done on our behalf, a work that was planned, put into motion before the foundation of the world. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.